Uh, last Sunday, we looked at, uh, as we've been working our way through the book of Job, we looked at the first part of Elihu's speech in Job 32, and we called that the introduction, where Elihu expressed his burning anger toward the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, for failing to properly answer Job's, after eight long speeches of his, um, and uh, basically they also kind of aimed their, their anger at Job as well because he didn't sin his way into the suffering because that can happen. That wasn't the case, but sin sort of developed in him as he was defending himself through all those arguments. He, he became kind of prideful and self-righteous and most certainly began to say things about God that, that were not holistic or fully accurate. And so Elihu in that first speech just kind of introduces who he is and, and what he's going to be doing, but he expresses this burning anger toward the friends and toward Job. Job basically had some bad thinking about God that had developed in him. And, and I think that the potential for that is always there when we're going through severe trials. Uh, I, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's right, but I think sometimes we kind of give way to stinking thinking and we don't think about God accurately or properly when we're in the midst of trials. Uh, sometimes we get angry with Him. We get frustrated with Him. Job doubted His goodness. Job doubted all sorts of things. But he didn't start that way. He got kind of progressively worse as he had to defend himself. One of the bad thoughts that, that Job had about God was this idea of God being silent. He, he believed that you know, God was silent through his, or, his entire ordeal. and In other words, God was just refusing to speak to him when he needed to hear from God most. And this is a charge that he made against God. In fact, it's, I would say God's silence or alleged silence is actually a theme in the book of Job. It's mentioned in, in multiple places like chapter 10, verse 2 chapter 11, verse 5, chapter 34, verse 29. So the idea of God being silent and not speaking into Job's scenario, that's a theme. In the next section, Elihu seeks to correct Job's bad thinking on this particular front. He will make clear to Job that God never, during his entire ordeal, never silenced his voice. Again, that's a, a charge that Job was making. I'm praying to you, you're not answering me. What's up with that? That's the charge that he was making. And Elihu is going to illustrate through this next portion of his long speech, God has not been silent the whole time. He's been speaking to you through a multitude of, of, of ways. You just don't have the ears to hear him. And isn't that true in our struggles and sufferings that sometimes our ears kind of get plugged with with all of the travail, and, and we, cannot, we cannot hear God's voice, so to speak, and that's what's happening. And he's going to correct that. He's going he's to show Job that God has not been silent. In fact, he's the opposite of silent. He's, he's still speaking. And what Job needs to actually do is, is start listening rather than boasting and complaining because that's what the battered patriarch was doing, thanks to his friends, really, because they encouraged that. I think your Bibles are probably already there. We just had Bruce read the section that we're going to look at. It's chapter 33, verses 1 to 33. It's a long section. we got to get right to work. We also have communion, so I need to really be moving quickly. The title of this message is, God is not silent. God is not silent. And uh, I've got some A's. We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday. Let's look at our first A. Number one, Elihu's aim. This is what he's aiming to do here. And we see this in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 33. We'll start at verses 1 and 2. This is the very next thing he says. He says, But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. Stop there. Firstly, we see that Elihu's aim was to really just to get Job to listen to him, to listen to all the words that he's going to speak. This is exactly what he asks of Job right up front. Now, he's already, 
asked this in the previous chapter, the first part of his speech, but he's asking again. I don't know if he's standing across from Job and he sees Job nodding off or Job rolling his eyes or if anything like that's happening at all. We know that Job tuned out with the other friends when they were talking, but, but basically his aim here is just to, to get Job to listen. And I think Elihu had a real serious task here. Job had been bombarded by the other three for a while. And the likeliness of Job listening yet to another speech, would you want to listen to another speech after getting hammered by three friends? No. And so Elihu's almost begging Job, just, just, I know you stopped listening to them, but I'm not them. I'm not even friends with them. I'm your friend. Listen to the words that I'm going to speak. Please, Job. His aim is to get Job to listen. Um, he stated this because, and he said this because, A, God has given wisdom to Elihu to impart to Job. So he wants him to listen because why? He's been given wisdom from God to give to Job. B, he did watch Job shut down and stop listening to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, in verse 2, he's kind of saying, just pay attention as I open my mouth and, and, and my tongue in my mouth begins to speak. So, Job, I want you to listen because I've got wisdom to give to you and I know you've shut down with the other guys. This is what he's saying in that verse, in those two verses. Verse 3, he says this next, My words declare the uprightness of my heart and what my lips know they speak sincerely. Elihu's aim secondarily here was to kind of be like Job in a sense to declare the uprightness of his heart as Job had done. Job was a, a righteous man. He was an upright man. There was nothing, uh, he was a blameless man. There was nothing in, in, in his attitude or behavior that led to the suffering, even though that's what they believed back then. If you were suffering, you were under the judgment of God. He had done nothing to cause that. And so he was an upright man, so to speak. He had a right relationship with God, even though he developed some pride in these sorts of things. And what Elihu is saying is that I'm the same as you. I'm an upright man as well. I live my life for God. I, I honor Christ with my life. I'm a blameless man too. I'm a man of faith. I'm a man who follows the sacrificial system. I do like you. And I'm going to declare the uprightness of my position and heart just as you have done. That's what he's saying. But what he's implying here is that I'm going to do it at a better level than you without any pride or self-righteousness. Because that's what's developed in you. And that's what's corrupted you at this point. This is what he's saying here. And he tells Job that what his lips know and speak shall be sincere. In other words, it will be without partiality, be without flattery. This is something that he's already said in chapter 32, verses 21 and 22, right? He says, I'm not going to turn to flattery, which is just plain lip service to people. And he says, I can't even do it because I don't even know how to do that. I don't know how to flatter men. I don't know how to flatter women. I don't know how to speak pleasantries like that. I'm just going to speak truth, and I'm going to do it without pride, without self-righteousness, without an inflated view of myself. This is what he's trying to convey. Elihu was convinced of the truthfulness of what he was about to say. I love that. He had this conviction concerning what he was about to say. I have received this truth from God, and so therefore when I speak, I'm speaking God's truth. He had total confidence in what he was about to say because he believed it was wisdom God had given him. I am going to speak truthfulness to you with a sincere heart, without any malice, without anything like that at all. And this confidence that he has here, because he says that I will declare this confidence that he has, it was grounded in the truth that he was dispensing God's heavenly wisdom, not man's earthly wisdom. I'm confident what I'm going to say because it has come to me from God, not from men. And the interesting thing about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar's speeches was there was a mingling of heavenly wisdom in those speeches and earthly wisdom in those speeches. And he's saying, I'm just going right to heaven for my source of wisdom. Therefore, I can confidently proclaim it to you with sincerity of heart, without flattery, malice, any partiality, any of those things. This is what he's saying in verse 3, verse 4. 
He says, he, and this is a declaration, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty has, uh, it gives me life. This is an amazing statement. It kind of reminds me of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. What he's saying here is that his aim was really just to reiterate the origin of wisdom, where it comes from. He is telling Job, it is the Spirit of God that has made me and made me wise. It is the breath of the Almighty that gives me life, that gives me wisdom, that, that gives me all good things. Genesis 2.7, James 1.5, and verse 17 of that same chapter in James. Elihu had said something like this in the previous chapter, didn't he? He said, wisdom comes from the breath of the Almighty, from above, not from men on earth, chapter 32, verse 8. He's reiterating this. As I continue to speak to you, Job, I want you to know that the source of my wisdom is not men. It is from God. What is he saying to Job? You better pay attention to what I'm saying. Whenever somebody wields this, those who are listening better pay attention. This is a matter of life or death. In, in this day and age, nobody takes this serious. Even Christians don't take this serious. I've had my share of experiences with Christians, quote-unquote Christians, who do not take this serious. Do not. And he is saying, what I am going to say to you has come from God. Take it serious. Listen to me. Listen to me. Job is, or, or Elihu is not like some guy who just desperately needs to be heard. Because when people pay attention to him, it does something for his ego or something for his identity, something for his image. He wants Job to hear him because he has something from God to impart to him. Scripture, truth. This is what he's saying here, man. The Spirit of God has made me. That, that's why I have wisdom to give to you. He is, in a sense even warning Job not to dismiss his words. He is, in a sense, saying, don't make the mistake of shutting down while I speak. I am not Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. God has given me wisdom that you so desperately need to hear. This is what he's saying here in verse 4. Verse 5, he says, Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Elihu's aim, and it seems like a challenge, right? Like, uh, I'm going to speak, and then I kind of dare you to respond. That's not what he's doing. His aim was not to engage Job in a debate. Elihu was a younger man, but he was very wise. Y you, you don't... This is not the time for debate with somebody who's suffering like Job. This is not the time to discuss the, the finer points of theology. This is not the time to say ridiculous things like, well, and, and I totally believe in God's sovereignty, but, you know, this is God's will that all this has happened to you. He's sovereign and over all things, and so just suck it up. That's not a good response from us Calvinists. This is not the time for anything like that at all. He's not trying to debate Job. He's not trying to challenge Job. This is not... The wisdom of Elihu versus the wisdom of Job. And we know Job had some pretty good wisdom. That's not what he's saying here. It was not his desire to have some kind of monologue with only one speaking. He is inviting Job to respond if Job felt the need to respond. This is what he's doing. But he's not saying, hey, let's, let's go to town and have a debate. Let's have a chess match. Your move. That's a timer right there. That hurt, actually, by the way. He is essentially giving Job permission to what? Set his words and take his stand. Look, if I say something that you want to challenge, go ahead. Take a stand. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of what you might say. I think what Elihu is doing here is he's displaying another facet of, of his wisdom because he was a wise young man and, and his wisdom is seen in, in being fair, right? Being fair. How is he fair? By giving Job an opportunity to respond. I don't think the other friends invited Job to respond. Job just couldn't contain himself. Every time they spoke, ha ha, my turn. He was like George Costanza. I'm getting in there. Jerk store called. They ran out of you. He wanted, to get, he wanted to get right back in there. But with Elihu, that's not the case. 
Elihu's like, look, man, you're an adult. You're, you're older than me. You've lived longer than me. You're a, you're a righteous, upright man like I am. And if you hear something that challenges you, I, I, I will yield the floor to you. Here's the microphone. This is wisdom in being fair like this. We, we don't have this in our society any longer. Everybody wants to put their position out there, and then that's it. They don't want to hear a response. They don't want to hear a contradicting view. You know what's helped to foster and cultivate this? Social media that turns everyone that's into it into a narcissist that can't hear opinions from anyone else. I've told you the story of why I got out of it years ago. I just, I don't know why I did this. Maybe I had a a longing in me that the gospel was not filling. Somehow I had to put up pictures of the pizza I was eating. Mount Mike's is stupid. You need to go to round table. Delete that picture. I mean, it's people, there's just so much contention. I mean, you have to ask the question, why did I need to put up pictures of the pizza I was eating? It's pretty stupid. But, but, you know, just everybody has an opinion, but nobody wants to listen to anyone anymore. There is no invitation to share an opposite view. In fact, if you have an opposite view, then we want to cancel you. That's the mentality of our culture. And it's very unwise because when you shut others down, they might have something to say to you that you need to hear, but you don't even give them a chance. Well, I don't want to give them a chance because that's a Democrat or that's a Republican or that's a guy with straw hair. You know who that is. Right? I mean, right? You, you, nobody wants, no, no interplay, no interaction. It's just, it's just divided and we have sides and, and, and we do it in theology. Well, we're Calvinists. There are Arminians. Oh, they're going to hell. We're not. You know, it's just ridiculousness. There's wisdom in being fair and saying, look, I'm going to speak. And, and I believe without a doubt that God has given me this wisdom. His spirit has given me this wisdom. But if you want to interject, it's okay. I will counter you with a better argument. No, not that. There's wisdom here. Answer me if you can. Set your words. Take your stand. That's wisdom. And it also illustrates something else about Elihu, and I think it's his humility. It takes a a, a degree of humility humility and even a, a sense of courage and braveness to be able to take arguments and other opinions, right? But there's a humility because you're willing to listen to others. This, this kid, I, I don't know if he was a kid, maybe he was in his 20s, but I, I tell you what, he's a special guy. He's a special guy. Job was super, super blessed to have this guy in his life. Not too much with the other three boneheads. Verse 6, he, he is continuing, Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay interesting set of words not exactly sure why the esv translates some of that that way i've looked into it in other translations interesting word choices here but ultimately elihu's aim was to make sure that job understood they were on level ground that's all he's saying he's saying i'm not better than you i i was made from clay i was made from the dust of the earth just as you were i i I didn't descend you know um descend from heaven a falling star I'm not, I'm not special, I, I'm not unique, I'm not, um, you know, I, I, I don't have better gifts than you, he's saying. I was, I was created by God's hand, breath blown into me, just as, as you were. He, obviously, he's going to Genesis 1 and 2. He's just saying, I'm not better than you. I, I'm toward God as you are, which means I live my life for God. I, I, I love God, I'm a man of faith, he's saying, and I was created by God. We're equals in, in terms of that, and this is wonderful, there is such a sense of superiority in people today, right? Everyone's better than everyone else. This group's better than that group, and it's just ridiculous. I was made just like you, Job. I, I have my eyes set on heaven just like you. He's basically saying there's no superiority on my end, Job. We are the same. I love God. You love God. God made me. God made you. Almost sounds like a song. Verse 7, behold, I love verse 7, by the way. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Elihu is, is, is kind of aiming to disarm Job in a way, to get 
him to holster his theological six-shooters, right? Because Job is like this. He went into total defensive mode with the other guys, and so he's, he's ready. He's got his theological six-shooters loaded up, ready to go, 15 rounds in each magazine. You know, what, what, what's this kid going to bring, man? I'm ready to go. And, and what Elihu's trying to do is say, it's okay. Put him in the holster. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to treat you the way that those other three treated you. I'm going to treat you differently. I'm not going to say anything to try to terrify you as they did. You know, like when they talked about how God was going to throw you into the pit of Sheol and all that. I'm not, I'm not going to try to terrify you. Even though you use some of that language, I'm not going to try to terrify you with my speech. You don't need to be armed and ready to defend yourself. You don't need to, you know, buy an, uh, an alarm system and, and arm up. I'm, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to be heavy on you, he says. Uh, Steve Lawson has a good little bit of commentary on this. Elihu's words were not intended to be so heavy upon Job that he could not bear up under them. Rather, his words were intended to build up, not tear down. This was a contrast to the cutting rhetoric of Job's three friends. They were just cutting him and trying to damage him and trying to harm him and trying to tear him down. And the whole idea of exhortation is to build up. This is what the scripture teaches. You take this and you use it to build up. Of course, this does remodel work. It does tear down what needs to be torn down, but it also rebuilds. And, and he's just saying, look, I'm not going to be harsh with you like they were. I'm not going to be hard on you. They meant to tear Job down. He is going to mean to build Job up. Don't be afraid of what I'm going to say. That's what he's saying. So that's the first A. Let's move to the second A, Elihu's admonition. Verses 8 to 12, it's not ammunition, it's admonition. Verses 8 to 11, we'll begin there. He says, surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. Now listen to this. He's citing Job. You say, and here's the quote, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. You have said, behold, God finds occasions against me. He counts me as, as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stalks and watches all my paths in there. Elihu, he, he affirms that he has heard pretty much everything that Job has said thus far, all eight speeches. We said last week one of those speeches was the longest speech in the book of Job. It, it covered like six chapters. It was almost 3,000 words total. That's a big speech. And he's basically saying, I have heard everything that you have said thus far. Every word that's come out of your mouth, I've heard all your responses, all your rebuttals, all your exhortations, all your corrections, all of your um, theological statements that glorify God. I've heard everything that you have said. And I've even heard everything that they have said. Everything that, that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have said, I've heard it all. Everything. I've been here since, since the beginning. I've just been listening. I've heard it all. Now, the thing is, is that Job's speeches were not directed at Elihu. They were directed at the three. But he tells Job, you have still spoken in my ears. I know that you were speaking to them, but my ears heard what you said, is what he's saying here. Why? Because he was standing there with the whole group. In verses 9 to 11, Elihu actually quotes some of the things that Job had said early on. We can walk back through verses 9 to 11. These are direct citations and quotes. Uh, you said you are pure, without transgression, clean and without iniquity. You said God finds occasions against you and treats you as his enemy. Uh, has he, and he has actually put your feet in the stocks and watches all your paths. These are, these are, this is a collection of literally a collection of direct quotes from Job, direct quotes from him. You look back to chapter 13, verse 27, where Job said, speaking to God, you put my feet in the stocks and you watch all my paths. He's quoting this guy verbatim. You look back to 1324, where Job said to God, why do you count me as your enemy? What's Elihu doing? Direct quote. He said to God, you, you're counting me as your enemy. You look back to chapter 13, verse 23, what did Job do there? He challenged God to produce some kind of proof of his sinfulness. He says, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know, that, make me know my transgression and my sin. 
Look, if I'm in sin and that's what's caused the suffering, God, I challenge you to prove it. Elihu is, is quoting him verbatim. You look back at Job 11.4, where Job literally said, I am clean in God's eyes. <laughs> I mean, you know, the other guys, maybe they didn't listen real well, but Elihu's got like a recorder. Click, hits record. He's literally coming back after many hours or many days and quoting Job word for word. Things that Job said. This is not the guy you want around. You want people that forget. <laughs> I mean, he even quotes Job on when Job says, God, I don't have any sin. I dare you or challenge you to tell me where they're at. Let me see those sins. I'm actually clean in your eyes. That's the way I see myself. These are direct quotes. And we need to understand that these things were, were you know, said or stated in a particular context, right? We need to be fair to Job. Because if you just took these things for face value, you'd say, man, that guy's like a Pharisee. That's the most prideful man in the history of the world. Well, keep in mind, he's defending himself against all sorts of false accusations in the context. He was defending himself. But they do make him seem prideful and self-righteous, do they not? I am clean in God's eyes. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've never said that. Most of the time, I'm saying I'm not clean in your eyes. I have sinned. Thank you for the blood of Jesus, right? So it, it, it makes him seem self-righteous and pride. And, and there's really just no denying some of the bad thinking and accusations he leveled against God. Those things are clear as day in his speeches. Now, why is Elihu quoting Job verbatim? Why did he take... And, and, you know, take all of these different sayings from Job and put them together, thread them together into a paragraph. Why is he citing Job here? Well, it's because he's setting up the admonition in verse 12. This is where he's going to disagree with what Job has said. Verse 12, behold, listen to this. After quoting exact words, exact sentences, exact phrases, behold, in this you are not right. You're not right about what you've been saying. He says, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. That's a summary statement right there. Elihu admonishes Job. He, he just basically tells him, you're not right in what you've been saying about yourself, and you're certainly not right in what you've been saying about God. Some of what you said about yourself is right. Some of what you've said about God is right. But in the totality of all your arguments, there's some bad thinking and bad speech. You, you've said some things that were just outlandish. Now, before laying out a very well-crafted argument in verses 13 to 30, Elihu kind of summarizes the, the total of everything here, uh, and he just kind of summarizes who God is because he thinks that Job has misrepresented God. He summarizes who God is at the verse 12 by simply saying God is greater than man. You've said things that diminish who God is. I want to remind you, Job, that God is greater than you, that He is greater than any man. This is what he's saying. It's a summary statement. Summary statement. Elihu reasoned that when compared with God's perfect purity, holiness, and righteousness, Job was absolutely, without a doubt, sinful. And I think Job would admit to that at some point. I don't know if he would at this juncture, but he would have early on. His railings against God arising from a soured spirit, they were not right. In reality, in the midst of his complaining and, or in the midst of his suffering and losing everything and all the complaining and everything, he shouldn't even have been complaining. We're not supposed to complain. We're supposed to do all things without complaining. That's, that's real hard for me. But in reality, he should have just never said anything against God in the midst of this. He could have railed against his birth as he did in, in chapter 3. I mean, he could have railed against his friends who were like Pharisees. I mean, there's things that he could have done, but he just did not need to bring God into it and start hammering against God. That was a mistake that he made. But we do know and understand that he was very frustrated with God for allegedly being silent and for putting him through this trial and all these things. The sad thing is, is that he just really developed in all of the defense of himself, not a superiority complex, but an equal complex. Like, I'm equal to God. I'm just like God. He's not saying he is a God, 
But he's, Job was attempting to put himself at the same level as God in the purity and holiness and those sorts of things. And this is what pride does. And Elihu is trying to bring him back down to earth where he belongs. That's what he's doing. This is why he says, God is greater than man. You told God you don't have any iniquity? God is greater than man because he's the only one who's holy who has no sin. You have sin, Job. I can hear it. I can see it. It's almost palatable and it tastes disgusting. It's there. I see it. I hear it. You are prideful. You are self-righteous. You are twisting truths about God in the midst of I understand your suffering, but you are not God. You are not at his level. If you ever have a good friend tell you, I need to remind you that you're not God, listen to them carefully because you have somehow got a wrong view of God at that point. And that's what he's doing here. You're not equals, Job. God is greater than man. God is greater than man. That's the admonition, Elihu's argument number three. This is verses 13 to 30. This is the largest section. We really got to cook through this. We'll start at 13 and 14. He says to Job, and, 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 and he says, why do you contend against him? Why are you going against God is what he's saying. Why are you competing against God? Why are you contending against God saying, God will, not, uh, God will answer none of man's words, for God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Elihu's argument here, as he begins to share his argument, and it's an amazing argument, it was meant to firstly illustrate God's greatness, because in the last verse he plainly says God is greater than man. It was meant to do that, but it was really meant to challenge Job's bad thinking. And bad thinking concerning one reality, and that's whether or not God speaks or was speaking during this time. On uh, two separate occasions, Job charged God with being deliberately silent during his time of need. Job 30, verse 20, Job 31, verse 35. And he has hinted toward that in other speeches. But his charge has been, look, I, I, I need you the most right now, God, and you are deliberately choosing to be silent in the midst of all this suffering, in the midst of my, in the midst of my, my greatest time of need for you, and you are deliberately and unfairly and unkindly silent toward me. He has stated this. In verse 14, Elihu de declares that what? God speaks to man in different ways. Interesting. But regardless of the various mediums that God may use, Elihu makes clear that man may not always grasp what God is saying. Furthermore, God is consistent when he speaks. The problem lies in man's inability to perceive. He uses the word there, uh, a Hebrew word that would mean perceive or to hear God. So, so what he's saying is, is that you say, Job, that God doesn't speak. I'm telling you he has been speaking, but I'm telling you you don't have the ability to hear him. You can't hear his voice. You can't hear how he's speaking to you through these other mediums. Keep in mind, I'm not pushing for extra revelation or something outside of Scripture. This took place before we had Scripture. So God was speaking directly to people through various mediums, the prophets and others. So this is perfectly lawful here. He's saying God does speak in different ways, but the problem is man doesn't often hear what God is saying, doesn't perceive it. Elihu is absolutely suggesting that God has been speaking to Job in the midst of Job's suffering, but Job has not had the ability or silence in his own mind and heart to actually hear what God is saying. His constant complaining, his constant Boasting just drowned out the still, small voice of God, so to speak. In verses 15 to 22, Elihu describes three ways. Uh, is it three? Yeah, I believe it's three ways that God speaks to man. And this would be pre-Scripture, right? Number one, God speaks to man through dreams and visions. Verses 18, 15 to 18. He says it like this, in a dream... In a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then God opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. 
the medium that God used in this day. He would speak to men whom he wanted to speak to through dreams and visions. Now, this had been Eliphaz's earlier experience and contention, Job 4, 12 to 21. Remember where he describes a dream that he had where God was speaking to him or showing or revealing something to him. So this was a common thing, and even Eliphaz probably perked up and said, I know exactly what Elihu's talking about. I've seen this. God may open the ears of men during deep sleep. Why? To terrify them with warnings. Why? To turn them aside from their evil deeds. This is what Elihu says. And maybe this is or was why Job was haunted with nightmares. Job 7.14, remember how he described, I have these terrible nightmares at night, I'm terrified in the middle of the night. Maybe God was attempting to speak to Job through those nightmares. You just dismissed it as a nightmare because you've been suffering, but maybe, maybe, Job Elihu was saying, God was attempting to speak to you through those nightmares to warn you of the consequences of your bad thinking or of the pride that's developing in, in you or the self-righteousness. The purpose of such divine admonitions, Elihu maintained, was to turn man from wrongdoing. God speaks to instill fear within the soul of man and to restrain him from sin, specifically, the, specifically probably the, 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 the foundational sin of all. What is it? Pride. It is the root and source of all sin. This restraint would, would keep man, when God comes to restrain man by speaking to him in a dream or vision in the middle of the night, addressing the man's pride or whatever sin it is, the purpose or restraint would be to keep that man's soul from the pit, which is a metaphor for the grave. So, so what Elihu is saying is that God does speak to people, and I believe he's been speaking to you, Job, through visions and dreams, which you've confirmed that you have had. And maybe God has been warning you about the dangers of the pit, because that's where prideful, self-righteous people go. They go right to the pit. Maybe God has been warning you through that. You say he's not speaking. I'm saying the potential for him speaking is there through that dream and that vision that you had. This is what Elihu is saying. And Elihu issues a, a really a terrifying warning. I think the whole Section there, 15 to 18, is pretty terrifying. But at the verse of, end of verse 18, there's really kind of a big warning there. If the man whom God admonishes through dreams and visions just disregards this call from God, this gracious, merciful call from God to repentance, what? He could suffer an untimely death. He could perish, he says, by the sword. And that's a, an interesting phrase, especially in the Old Testament, it, it, it's almost always used metaphorically for that man being slayed by God in judgment. So Elihu is saying God does speak through dreams and visions, and he gives warnings, and if men do not heed those warnings that come through that medium, they could be slayed with a sword. In other words, God could bring swift judgment. And the next thing you know, they're in the pit. This is what he's saying. To perish by the sword can be taken literally and or metaphorically, depending on the context. It can mean to be struck down by a literal sword, or it can mean to be struck down by God in judgment. Either way, the unrepentant person whom God is trying to reach ends up destroyed. That's the point. That is the point. So, firstly, God speaks through dreams and visions. Secondly, and this is, a, this is interesting, and I think we would all affirm this one even today, but we would never say that God adds to His Word, right? Secondly, God speaks through pain and suffering, through pain and suffering. Verses 19 to 22, this is a brilliant section. He says, man is also rebuked, and thinking that he, man is rebuked by God with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen, they stick out. He's talking about emaciation. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life, uh, his life to those who bring death. So he draws near to the pit and to those who bring death. I, I think he's speaking of, of, I don't know what he's speaking of, maybe just death in general there, or abaddon, which means uh, death. Elihu tells Job that pain and suffering can and will often be a rebuke from God. 
literally. This is what he's saying. When man is in pain on his bed, these are the examples he uses, but I would say any instance of pain, but in particular, when man is, is laid out in, in dreadful pain on his bed, when he has continual strife in his bones, he just, just no easiness, he has pain in his bones, when he has a distaste for food, right, because that's what severe pain and sickness does, the first thing to go when you're really sick or in a lot of pain is the appetite. Food is disgusting when you are totally sick or in pain. He's describing these things when he has a distaste for food, his loss of appetite, his wasting flesh, his emaciation, right? He's losing all of his body mass and weight because he's in pain, he's sick. He says, and, his, and when his soul is drawing nearer and nearer to the pit of death, he is saying, all of these things could be God's way of saying to you, you need to repent. You need to repent. I have used this exact illustration in hospitals where I'm at the bedside of a dying man or woman or somebody who's just in severe pain. And I, I myself have said and even prayed these sorts of things. That look, look you, this is an opportunity for you, Judith. I don't think we have anyone by that name here to realize your mortality, that you are literally on the precipice of eternity and you need, to, you need to take seriously what I'm saying. God is using this pain in these final moments to finally get your attention. He's calling you to himself right now through this pain. You are at the end of your life, dear Judith. Who hasn't said something like that to a dying man or dying woman, dying child? These are things that we say. We use this exact example. We use pain and suffering as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And he's saying that God can use it for those means. That's what he's saying here. I've used the same illustration. I would say this, write this one down. Pain is a powerful preacher. It is. Pain is a powerful preacher. It tells you that not only something's wrong, but that your body is going to eventually fail and that you need Jesus Christ. It may not say, go that far, but I would say it does. If there's somebody there to preach on top of that pain as a preacher, I use it as an opportunity to preach Christ. But think about that. Even when I'm sick as a believer, it reminds me of the futility of life, the futility of the flesh, and that one day I will be with Christ where I don't have this pain any longer. That'll be nice. I'll have one chin in heaven. Instead of five, hidden by a beard. Have we not used pain and suffering as an opportunity to preach Christ? We have. How many times have you said, God is seeking to get your attention right now? If you listen to Dave's testimony, he was on a hospital bed after 29 kidney transplants. Not that many, but I'm using hyperbole. But it seems like it. The guy's got more kidneys in him than Hershey's has kisses. I don't even know where that came from. It's not in the script. But he will tell you, if you ask him, what is your testimony? He will tell you, it was when I was on my hospital bed that I came to these realizations. Pain is a preacher. It can be. And this is what he's saying. I've preached, I've, I've used the pain and suffering, the final moments. I've done it in hospitals, convalescent homes, at, at bedsides, at, at residences. I've, I've, I've done it in hospice situations. I, I just kind of did this not very long ago with Diane's sister who's on hospice. Pain is a preacher. Judith, I want you to see, yes, I know your cancer is painful. I know that it's going to end your life. I, I, I want you to see that, that, that Christ can heal you from this in the next life and that you won't have cancer in his presence. It's just a temporary thing for here. But, but if you do not repent and trust in Christ, then cancer right now and all the pain and suffering that it's causing you in this life, trust me, it is the least of your worries. Because when you go off into the pit, you're going to experience pain and suffering unlike anything you've ever experienced in this life. You will consider your life with cancer paradise compared to eternal judgment. Believe in Christ now. Now. I tell you, I demand you do it now. I don't want anything to do with that. Shake the dust off. What can you do? It's a preacher. It's a preacher. I, and I, I really kind of, I, I've done this. I've done this over and over, and I think that's what Elihu is trying to do. Now, now, I just want you to stop and think about it. 
Do you think that Elihu was speaking specifically here? Or do you think he was generalizing? Is Job in pain? Is Job emaciated? Is Job not everything that he's described here? He is emaciated. He's covered in wounds. He's in severe pain. He believed he was going into the pit. He couldn't eat. He had no appetite. Choices, foods. He was a wealthy man. All the foods that he, the rack of lamb and all that. Gross, disgusting. I don't want any of that. I'm switching to keto. Couldn't eat anything. He hated it all. He's not generalizing here, friends. He is speaking right to Job in the midst of Job's precise predicament. He is. He was speaking specifically to Job. He's referring to Job. He had all these symptoms. Essentially what he's saying is, Job, you've said repeatedly that God is silent and he won't answer you. He is speaking to you through your pain, brother. He's speaking to you through your suffering. Your pain is, in a way, his voice. He is rebuking you for your pride, for your self-righteousness. He's rebuking you through your suffering, through your pain, through your loss of appetite, through all these things. He's rebuking your bad thinking. You say God isn't speaking. He is speaking through your pain. You're just in so much pain and agony, you can't hear his voice. This is what he's saying. Number three, the third way that God speaks to men is through messengers. This would be primary. Verses 23 to 24, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Stop there. This seems to be the most confusing part of the whole speech here in this chapter, but it's not. The Hebrew word for angel is malach. It appears 214 times in the Old Testament. It's translated angel 111 times, messenger 98 times. It's even translated as ambassador into English translated into English as ambassador four times, and then there's one other time that it's used in some variant that I could not find. The context here of verses 23, 24, and really on from there, the context has to do with intercession. So it is unlikely that Elihu was referring to literal angels. Why? The Bible does not teach that angels actually pray and intercede for men. It doesn't teach that anywhere. Roman Catholicism says that the Bible teaches that, but it doesn't draw its theology for that doctrine, support for that from actual Scripture. It draws it from the Apocrypha, which is in addition to Scripture. So Roman Catholicism believes that angels intercede and pray for men, but the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Some English translations use the word messenger here in our text instead of angel, and I think that fits the context better. The King James does that, the New King James, and the Young's Literal, which is a very good translation, by the way. The point is simple. It is that God sends messengers to speak on His behalf, whether they be angelic or from earth. He sends heavenly messengers, angels. And and I don't know if He does that anymore today, but He certainly did it in the Old Testament, right? He even did it in the New Testament a little bit. The Bible is fraught with examples of angels who are messengers who have come to deliver God's message to people. The angel Gabriel spoke to Daniel and Zechariah and even Mary, the mother of Jesus, Daniel 8.16, Luke 1.19, and Luke 1.26. And God also sends earthly messengers, and I think that's the specific reference here. He sends earthly messengers to speak on His behalf, prophets and priests. We call them pastors and evangelists. According to Elihu, When God's messengers minister, he describes all this here, when God's messengers minister on God's behalf, they do really three things. A, and he he lists them right here in the text, they declare to man what is right for him. In other words, here's the right way to go for you. You are going the wrong way. Here is the right way to go. Here's what's righteous. And then B, they intercede and ask God to show mercy and deliver men from going down to the pit. Right? The messenger comes and, and says, here's the right way, here's God's way. If you turn to God's way, you don't go down to the pit. This is what he's conveying here. And then C, they proclaim a found ransom. I find that to be the most interesting phrase here. They proclaim a found ransom. What is a ransom or what does ransom mean in Scripture? What does it refer to? It refers to the cost of redemption, the cost of redemption. The price that had to be paid to make men right with God and deliver them from the pit. The ransom, my friends, has it not been found? 
Who is the ransom? Christ is the ransom. Amen? It is Christ. His life was the ransom. The price of redemption has been paid in full by Him. What did Jesus say in Mark 10, 45? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a what? Ransom for many. Boom! We have found the ransom. Now, Elihu is unaware of some of these things. He lived a long time before Scripture was written. I think he, he knew that there would be a Redeemer and a ransom payer that would come. He had some sense of that because that dates all the way back to Adam and Eve. But we know the truth about this, don't we? When God sends a messenger, that messenger proclaims the right way according to God, calls for that person they're trying to reach to turn away from, from the sin that besets them and will, will, will condemn them to, so that they don't go into the pit. And what do we do on top of that? We proclaim the ransom. God has, has paid a ransom so that you could be delivered from this, this sin and be delivered from this judgment, be delivered by the pit. And who is the ransom? Christ. It is Christ. This is what he's teaching us here. This is brilliant. This is gospel in the oldest book. In the Bible, it's amazing to me. The ransom has been found. It's in Christ. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And the next line, Elihu gives an example of a messenger's intercessory prayer for a man who is suffering. Verse 25, let his flesh... This is what this messenger that's praying or this intercessor would be praying for this sick man who's on his deathbed, so to speak. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Stop there. This intercessory prayer has to do with the restoration of the sick man's physical health. The messenger prays for the restoration of his flesh and the, the return of his youthful vigor or his energy. What did Job need? What was one of his major needs, right? Among other things, he needed exactly what Elihu points to here. His flesh and energy were destroyed. He needed these things restored, right? Job 2, 7, the devil hit him with the boils. His body was falling apart. He had no energy. He was totally weak. Job 16, verse 15. Elihu, again, once again, he is not generalizing. He is telling Job. He was being specific about Job. This intercessory prayer can go up for you. What is he suggesting? What is he saying? This is your predicament I'm addressing here, Job. You're the one that needs this restoration. What is he saying? I'm the messenger whom God sent to speak to you. Job, God still speaks. He's speaking through me right now. This is what he's saying. I love this. I love it. Job needed the things that Elihu was saying, that God sent him to, to, to bear a message for him and to tell him that there is a way out of these things. He was being specific. He is the messenger. He sees himself as the messenger. He is saying, I have, I have been sent by God to declare what is right to you, Job, to pray and intercede for you and to point you to the ransom. God is not silent, Job. I am his mouthpiece. He is speaking to you through me. Listen and pay attention. This is what he's saying. Now, according to the book of Job, listen to this. According to the book of Job, you've read the book, right? What happened with Job later on in the end chapters, the last chapter? Was he restored? Did his restoration follow Elihu's ministry to him? Oh, light bulb. Mmm. Make the connection. This messenger sent by God shared the truth and pointed Job to the right way, did what he could to try to deliver him from the pit that pride and self-righteousness will put you in. He intercedes on his behalf, asks God for restoration, for spiritual restoration, for physical restoration. This is, the, this is what the messenger is telling Job, I've come to do this for you. And in just a few short chapters, what happens? It happened. It happened. It happened. Man, this is such good stuff, you guys. What does James 5.16 say? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
You are seeing that here in the book of Job. You are seeing the truth of that. In verses 26 to 28, Elihu describes the powerful effect gospel ministry can have, especially intercessory prayer. Just some short, brief things here. Number one, it can lead men to, uh, it can lead men to pray for forgiveness and acceptance from God in verse 26. So when you intercede on someone's behalf and pray for them and minister to them with the gospel, it can cause them to pray to God to cry out for forgiveness and acceptance. He illustrates this in verse 26. Then, then man prays to God and, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. There's like a restoration that comes. Number two, it can lead men to make a profession of their sin and wickedness. Your intercessory prayer for that person who's suffering and ministering to them the gospel, it can, it can lead them to make a profession of their sin. They can confess and they can confess their sin and wickedness. Verse 27, he sings before. This is the guy who's now been delivered, so to speak. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. This is, this is a declaration of being delivered from the sin that this faithful minister helped me understand. Thirdly, it can lead men to praise their Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Verse 28 this is the man who's been delivered and that it's the messenger and the one who's interceded who's helped them to come to that realization. Now look at this, what this guy is doing. He is, he, is, he is proclaiming that God has redeemed his soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. This intercessory prayer and gospel ministry, God has worked through it to regenerate and restore and bring this spiritually dead suffering sinner to life and to worship. That's what can happen. That's what a lie he was laying out for us. In the last line under this heading, and we've got to move even faster, Elihu's argument, Elihu reminds Job of God's persistence. Verse 29, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring his soul back from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. The statement, God does all these things, refers back to God warning men to turn aside from their sinful deeds and pride through dreams and visions, through pain and suffering, and through messengers. Elihu tells Job that God is persistent when it comes to teaching man divine lessons. He can repeat these warnings two to three times. If a man refuses to repent or entangles himself in sin again, so God in mercy in those days would come to a man in dreams and visions or through a messenger or through pain and suffering multiple times. If the man had repented, God would come back to him later if he entangled himself in sin again. That's what he's saying. He's persistent when it comes to these things. And these, these persistent one, two, three-time warnings are given to bring that man back, bring his soul back from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Elihu did not share this truth to inspire complacency in Job. Men will put off repentance and faith in Christ if they are made to think they have more time and opportunities. I would say this, if God warns a person, that person is to repent and believe the gospel at once. Don't think, well, I might have two or three more shots at it. God can issue additional warnings, but he doesn't have to. He's under no obligation. Amen? He can end a life in an instant. He can. He can put unrepentant sinners to death and cast them into the pit. He can snuff out unrepentant saints and bring them into the, into the presence of Jesus where they will actually stop Finally, they will stop sinning against the Lord. He can do that. Think of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts 5, 1 to 11. God can give more than one warning, but we shouldn't presume that He will do that. What does the Scripture teach? If you hear God's voice, if He warns you through a faithful messenger, through the Word, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. It also says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands people everywhere to repent, Acts 17, 30. And we have one more A, and it's fast. Number four, Elihu's appeal, verses 31 to 33. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Elihu exhorts Job to continue to pay attention, to listen to him as he speaks, he gives Job an opportunity to counter if Job disagrees with what he has said thus far. And he appeals to Job, if you have any words, answer me, speak. 
for I desire to justify you, or I desire to hear what you have to say. And if Job chooses to remain silent through the duration of Elihu's speech, Elihu will take that as a confirmation, and he will continue to press on and to continue to share his speech and his wisdom with Job. If you speak up, I'll listen and let you rebut me, and I'll respond to that. If not, I'll take it as a confirmation. That's what he says in these last few verses. Closing. The moment you've all been waiting for. We just covered 33 verses. That's a miracle. Shut up, Cameron. He's off. It is a miracle. Elihu identified several mediums God used to speak to man prior to the recording and completion of Scripture, right? The Word, the Bible, right? Dreams, visions, pain, suffering, heavenly messengers or angels, right? These are the mediums that he laid out. The question is, does he still use these mediums today? That is one of the great questions to ask because there's a great many people that think that God is still speaking in a multitude of ways, trying to get men's attention. And I would say yes, through pain and suffering, but there has to be a faithful minister there or messenger there to actually connect to the gospel. But the question is, does God still use these same mediums? Well, let me read a verse for you that provides the answer. Hebrews, why? Because you don't want my opinion. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Listen carefully. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Does God still use these various mediums to speak? According to Hebrews, He did. And now He has spoken to us through His Son. Right In the past, God spoke in many ways. But now he has spoken through Christ. You know what? We're not supposed to focus on or rely on the old mediums. And I say this because there is an obsession with the old mediums in church circles today, certain church circles. People are always trying to hear from God in a dream or in a vision or, or they want to be visited by an angel. I don't know why that would scare the snot out of me. But they're always claiming that these things are happening or that... We should pursue to hear from God through these mediums. And I say we are not supposed to focus on those old mediums, and we are not supposed to rely on them. And I think what happens so often is that people today, most of the time they're continuationists and they think these things are still going, and what they do is they, they try to, I don't know, develop some style of, for, for, um, for prophecy or, or they, they pray in some kind of way where they're trying to, connect to God, but they're really it's just a weird kind of mythical kind of thing. And I think what happens is because these are old mediums and, and probably not in use today, they're tapping into demon channels. They're tapping into demon channels. They're not hearing from God. There's a lot of chatter out there. There is. And one of the ways that you know if you're getting chatter is it doesn't square with this bad boy right here. And most of the stuff that people are claiming that God is revealing to them outside of Scripture is totally outside of Scripture, has nothing to do with Scripture. They're tapping into Demian, uh, Demian, Damian. That's from the Omen. He's, he was a demon kid. They're tapping into demon channels. But that's besides the point. We're not supposed to focus or rely on the old mediums. We're supposed to focus on Christ. He is the final, definitive Word of God. In fact, He is the Word, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is the Word made flesh, John 1.14. It is a wrong focus to focus on those old mediums. Focus on Christ. Christ is the divine messenger who left heaven, incarnated, and became an, became an earthly messenger who proclaimed God's Word. And every subsequent proclaimer and gossiper of the Word of the gospel is an earthly messenger who speaks for God. If, if Christ is preached, God is speaking. If the Bible is read or taught, God is speaking. It really ends there. The better question to ask is not, does God still use these mediums? The better question to ask is this, 
Are we listening to the medium he speaks through now? And that is through Christ and his word. Are we listening to Christ? That is the better question to ask. Not, well, can he speak to me through dreams? He has spoken through Christ. And he has said everything you will ever need to hear right here. There is an obsession with these things today, and it's mind-boggling. Are we listening to Christ? Are we heeding his warnings? And the, the fact is, in a church of this size, it's not real big, but we know everybody in here. The fact is that some people in this church are listening to Christ, and others are not. They are not listening to the voice of Christ in his word. They are not. They disregard it. And here's the deal. If we refuse to listen to God's final and complete and perfect, authoritative, absolutely perfect revelation in Christ, if we refuse to listen to Christ, God will eventually judge and cast us into the pit. He will. Or if you already belong to Him, if you're a person of faith and you refuse to listen to Christ, because this happens with us sometimes. Think of King David. What will he do? He will chasten and discipline us until we come to our senses and repent. Why put yourself through all that extra trouble when life is troublesome enough? Why put God to the test? Deuteronomy 6.16, Luke 4.12. Why put him to the test by playing fast and loose with his word? Why do that? As Christ's earthly messenger, I appeal to you this morning, hear and obey his voice today. I have to apply this to myself. Hear and obey his voice today. He himself said, and it's not just the red letters, the whole scripture, obey the whole scripture. It's all God's voice. It's all Christ. Christ himself said this, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15. One of my favorite verses. That is what we are to do right now. Right now. 